Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day, g'day, g'day. It's Matt Young from the Story Chunder podcast, and welcome back. This week, we thought we were going to go a little bit lighter, but uh, the events of the week sort of brought us in a different direction. This is the History, Herstory, Their Story podcast, and it's a collection of um, stories that were told um, on our past Monday's storytelling event, and then some from our archives. If you haven't listened to our podcast before, These are unbelievable true stories from people's lives here in Brisbane, Australia, the land of the Turbal and Yagura people, and we pay our respects to our First Nations people here and around the world. Our first story is from Stephanie Kuti. She is an actress and a playwright and a comedian, and she's just returned from L.A. to Australia And she's had a very interesting story and journey to tell us of a historical event that caused that change of place. And here is Stephanie. I guess probably the main reason we came back um, would have been, uh, so we have been living in the U.S. for the last four years and acting and working there. And um, uh, COVID happened in March, which was kind of crazy. Um, so we're amongst all of that when uh, Trump released a national order. Everyone went crazy panic buying. And we thought we could ride it out. Um, everything was okay. Picked up art. Uh, couldn't do much. No one could work. So we were having a good time, just like guilt-free art at home. And got to about May 30th, I think, was the last day where something was going on. So that was after George Floyd. And we didn't really know what was going on. And three days before that, the Friday, so because of COVID, you're only allowed to walk around. Um, so LA uh, closed restaurants, everything, except for grocery stores, servos, and you're allowed to walk around your neighborhood for exercise. And so we would go on our daily Burbank walk. We lived in Burbank um, near all the studios. And it was a little nice neighborhood, pretty safe. But this day we walked um, our usual route as well, like, we kind of change it up, but we usually keep the same, you know, waving at some of the names. And because I started watercolour painting, as you saw, I um, was getting uh, really inspired by these houses. And we were in our exercise clothes, our bandana masks, and I stopped, we stopped, uh, we being uh, my boyfriend Paris and I. And I literally took my phone out of the armband to take a photo, and this lady in her car drove past real slow. She was white. She had her mask and she death stared us as I took a photo of this house that I was like, oh, I'm going to paint it later. Like I was going to rob it. And I was like, this, this feels weird, but I don't know why. Then Sunday happened and then it turned out that Friday was the first day of the protests. So it gave an excuse for everyone that was white to now judge the people of color. Um, it was like the green light went off and it was like, 
because um, the Black Lives Movement was coming out, then, you know, it became like this whole thing that we were like feeling really unsafe because not only are we people of color, I am half black, half Asian, I'm brown, we're also foreign, we're Australian, and we're already getting these looks and this feeling um, of something is wrong in our really nice neighborhood of Burbank. And uh, a couple weeks, like that week happened and you know, the fires started, that was 20 minutes from us, it was Hollywood. Our parents in Australia would see it before we did and we were like, okay, that's getting pretty close. And we would have loved to peacefully protest. Like we're all for the Black Lives Movement, of course, because you know we need to change, things need to change in Australia as well. I've been racially profiled and harassed in Australia. I'm in Brisbane working for Amnesty um, at shopping centers. So it's happened like my whole life to when we got to the States. The only difference was is they have guns, yo. So <laughs> like you don't know what's gonna happen. and. Our friends that were even, our friends that were white and Jewish were getting tear gassed in Hollywood. Like, as much as they would love to peacefully protest, the cops were attacking them. Um, the other people coming out with guns saying all white lives matter, like, it's a matter of time before someone does a mass shooting. Like, I don't know when, and our parents were like, you better get out. Um, so we literally decided on May 30th, um, also because uh, Paris, my boyfriend, his Australian visa was going to expire on the 18th that we had to like haul ass, pack up our lives in a week, which sucked majorly. Um, Cause we love our friends over there. We have, um, he has family over there. And we just had to make this huge life change to just go as much as we'd want to like fight and be there. Like some of our friends were protesting and they're getting attacked. Like it didn't matter if they were white, they were black, they were Chinese or Asian. Like they were all getting um, harassed. Like the cops are turning off and then there was like other people amongst the movement. So like the looters would hit out. Um, all of North Hollywood was graffitied. Um, all stores were boarded up and closed. Like that's literally 10 minutes from our house. Like it was getting closer and closer. And the probably the last straw was talking to our neighbor. I said that this is what happened when we went for a walk. She said she's part of the neighborhood watch. And there have been shootings literally five minutes from our house of white shooting colored people. And we were like, that we look Mexican. So um, there's no Islanders there. They don't know that I'm Fijian or, or um, that I'm mixed. No one hears you speak. They could look at you the wrong way. Like, got to the point that we were uncomfortable to go to the grocery store to throw our trash out. So, um, yeah, we had to come home. Um, so seeing everything, like, then we kind of had this weird guilt of feeling bad. Like, we were able to leave, but we couldn't, like, our friends have to stay. But, and the upside is, oh, not really an upside, but like if things got really bad, a lot of them could go home to their families, except us. So, if, and things are getting worse right now that we're like, well, like we probably made a good call to come back here and not stay there right now. Even though like LA's our second home, we've been there so long. I've been back and forth since 2011 um, as an actor. Um, we made huge connections. We're like friends, you know, a ton of friends, but when it got to like proper safety of like not being able to go outside, like Australia does have dickhead who, but you know, I can fight someone without a gun here. <laughs> um, uh, and it just, it just sucks. Like they, um, what they're going through is insane. And I do have that guilt of like not being able to stand up and fight with them and hoping to like try and do some stuff where we can do it here. Like, as I said, we would have joined the peaceful protests, but, the protesters are also getting attacked. Like they're trying 
trying to be peaceful, but everyone else around them is not. And with State of America, is everyone seeing like, like um, George Floyd wasn't the one, like um, Breonna Taylor was the week before and she got shot in her sleep and was an EMT. She was a medic helping COVID. Um, you know, Amand um, was a week before that was going for a job. I have African-American cousins um, that are fully black and I'm like, hey, like he fits the description of could walking down the street and he could get shot. And I was like, that's insane. Like they have to, you fear for them, like they're your family. So it's like, if these were your cousins and that, like wouldn't you fear for them too? So it's getting like, it's pretty intense. So um, yeah, we had to make the decision to fly back here and here we are. That story left me quite speechless the other night and certainly made me reflect on my privilege. But to go from the macro to the micro um, in terms of historical events, our next storyteller is Shane Oliver, who has the Shane Oliver Experience podcast on the That's Not Canon network, which you are listening to now. And, um, and Shane told the story when he decided that his historical event was going to be a personal history about the birth of his child. I, I called the story as, as I wrote it out just for some notes called uh, first home birth, first kid, first everything. So basically uh, it, I'm going to tell the story of the day my son was born, Jude. Uh, Jude um, was 41 weeks, I think. He was, he was pretty overdue. Uh, and um, what was the best part about that is that it was a home birth as well and it's not a very common thing that is done anymore but um like it's what people used to do not so long ago like they had midwives they were a, a normal regular job right it's only been like the last what 40 50 years where it's like you have to do it in a hospital right and you know like for me personally i know i was never much of a I never really thought much into that sort of thing about, you know, when I was going to be a dad um, and, and like how, how it would happen if it was going to be in a hospital or whatnot. But um, Jess told me that she wanted to do a home birth. And so we talked about it and I got to find out what it was all about and everything. And I thought, well, you know, I'm sold on it, to be honest, because we've, we've both had bad experiences with hospitals and just how we've been treated when we've gone there. So we're like, you know what? Yeah, fuck them. Let's, let's, let's do it our way. So, uh, we, we, you know, uh, we got a midwife, um, uh, two in the end for the day. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so it was the day of, um, it like started like any other day, but obviously Jess is very pregnant. Um, is she, you know, I, I asked her in the morning just before I'm about to head to work, you know, how are you feeling and you're good because, you know, she's pretty much due any day. Um, and she's like, oh, I'm a bit uncomfortable, but uh, I, I feel okay at the moment. So, um, yeah, and so I felt okay to go to work. So that's what, exactly what I did. Got up, heading to work, and it was about uh, – about 10 o'clock that I got a message from Jess saying that it's probably not a good idea to go to uh, indoor indoor umpiring tonight. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, it's not a solid or anything like that, but it 
could be happening. It's like, oh, okay, right. This is this is it. This is go time. We're 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 gonna have a we're gonna have a home birth. Holy shit! Um, so the, all the all those thoughts are coming through my head and stuff like that. Like not not the panic, but that 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 funny that that gut feeling that you get like when you're anxious and stuff. But not like a not the anxious feeling it was the excited like it was oh this is this is something different like that i that i'd never felt before because you know this is my first time ha uh, having experienced uh childbirth in any way so well i mean i've had my sister and stuff that had kids and i've been a part of that but this is my own this is my own flesh and blood so like it's just completely new to me um so uh, it was about one one o'clock one thirty that I got the call uh, over the two way uh, on the radio um, saying that uh, it's probably a good time to uh, get your stuff and head on home because Jess is having a baby. So over the over the um, two way, I was like, "Whoa!" Like did a did a good scream and I was I was excited, so I jumped off and legged it inside and. Grabbed, grabbed all my gear and headed to the car and I went, uh, tried getting back as quick as I could. Uh, but obviously, uh, traffic, highway stuff heading out towards, uh, Brassel in, in, in Ipswich at the time. That's, that's where, that's where, um, where Jude was born. And so I've, I've <laughs> I pull up to the driveway and I'm like, I'm not sure what I'm going to expect, but I pull up to the driveway and, just as I'm opening the door, I started to hear this mooing sound, and I'm not even joking. I, I, I go to open the door, and I just hear, oh, <laughs> and um, I'm like, oh, okay, this this is definitely happening right now. <laughs> so I've opened the door, come come through, and, like, the, the, the French doors are, are open to into the bedroom where, where she is at the time, and I, I kind of see her, her arm over the over the bed head, and basically I've got the image. I know I know how what position she's going to be in as I'm about to walk around the door. Um, but, yeah, I, I just see, like, kind of moving back and forth, and then I come around the corner, and then I just see uh, I see everything happening, and just my brain just goes, like, for a split second, like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what What do I do? Um, but then uh, her next uh, uh, contraction set off the mooing again. Um, and that kind of triggered me back into going, okay, right, i gotta, I got to get this. i got to put my stuff down. i got to clean myself up because I'm, I'm dirty from work. Um, but, you know, like just just going into that whole moment home birth sound crazy but it's 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 honestly it's incredible if done with the right people like as i said earlier it's it's something that used to be done not so long ago uh you know we had two midwives we had myself and jess's mum uh and we even had a photographer there at the time too like uh, one of our friend one of her friends was doing that stuff so we had all, we had heaps of people there anyway plus uh jess's dog hannah you know the old guard dog you know she was she was hovering around she wasn't sure what was going on um hearing hearing the the the, the calls from jess um 
but yeah, it, it was just, it, it was so good. And, and the week before we'd actually uh, practice setting up the birth pool uh, also. So um, it was, uh, it, it was very easy to get going again. So as soon as I've, I've come through and seen everything happening, I've, I've got, I've gone outside to get the hose going to, to fill up the birth pool. Um, so while, while I'm waiting with that, I'm, I'm, I'm with Jess just checking in on her, making sure everything's okay. Um, and it was, yeah, from then on, like we got ourselves into the, uh, in, into the pool. Um, and we tried staying in that as much as we could too, but in between what, what felt best for Jess when she was in, uh, while she was going through it was when she got into the shower, like after having a, having a break sort of thing in between it all. Um, so in between that, we'd try and get comfortable for her while we were in the while we were in the bar uh, while we were in the pool. Um, and oh man, like in between some of that, there was a period in the, where I was kind of crouching in a position that was comfortable for her, but absolutely not comfortable for me. And I had to stay in that position for because it was like no don't you move like this is this is it like i'm comfortable right now um and yeah i was just in a in a really awkward position where my my ankle felt like it it, it had gone completely numb and uh <laughs> I, I tried stepping out of the out of the pool afterwards and just kind of went out with the limp a little bit um and uh, in between that i'd, I'd gone outside because that was about three hours i was in that position for um and yeah there was like good periods in between that uh like less than that sort of thing but that was like the last that was the last one like right before everything went down like we were starting to hit the crescendo um so i'd gone outside to just have myself a a sneaky cigarette and just have a have a break and um next minute uh sue jess's mum runs runs to the door and says get yourself inside like the baby's coming um so i've gone oh shit right let let's go uh put the butt in the bin ran inside washed my hands did all that jazz um and i'm going where is everyone um and turns out we've they've gone into the bathroom because i as before like when we were having the break jess had gone to go get herself in the shower and cool off and have a have a warm shower um and and right when that was happening um that was obviously the 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 right point like that was the the calling as you would say uh for everything to finally happen uh, and yeah tried running into this super tiny bathroom um where there's like three or four of us trying to get in there and i'm trying to like get in there so i can try and catch the baby <laughs> um and so just uh, it, it happened so quickly it was it was insane like i'd, I'd just seen the head and next thing you know, I've, I've, I've just turned to my right because I was talking to Mayette. And then as I've turned back, the baby's coming down already. And it just kind of slid into the bath. Like, and we've just, like, just caught it sort of thing. Uh, just caught him, I should say. Uh, and it just happened so quickly. Like, it was all in one. After, after 
uh, over 12, between 12 and 18 hours or something like that. It was just in all in one super quick motion it happened. And it was honestly just one of the craziest experiences I think I've ever had in my life. Nothing can compare to it, obviously. It's your own flesh and blood. Um, but it was just the most amazing feeling to 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 hear his first breath and and like cry like that that whole thing like because he's like it's that still moment then then you, you you've got all these thoughts going through your head and you don't see them quite moving or breathing it you're like oh my god what's going on and then you just see him take that and then the, the, that's the next thing they do is they cry because they realize they're not in they're not in the womb anymore like they're not with they've just hit they're feeling everything for the first time and that was just such a surreal feeling um and so we've uh, we've gotten ourselves back into the bedroom and uh gotten ourselves comfortable and i'd totally forgotten about this but uh just started to get contractions again and I've I've freaked out and gone and just had that split second thought. Wait, is there another baby coming? What what's happening right now? Um, but it turns out the placenta was still to come. Um, so I had to. Uh, and then once I was <laughs> reminded of that, I'm like, oh shit! Like I'm I'm pretty pretty tired at this point. Obviously, Jess is excruciatingly tired. Of course, like I shouldn't be complaining at all. You know what I mean? But I was pretty tired, and like I just like, oh shit! Right, um, that that's supposed to be a thing. Um, and yeah, so then I've we've we've dealt with the we've dealt with that. Um, gotten back into the bed. I got to cut the umbilical cord myself and got to attach the this uh, pendant as well that had his initial on it and the colour. Uh, it was like rainbow coloured and it had yellow down the bottom, like to like as his little signature thing for us between Jess and I. We nicknamed him Lemon Drop. I've got him. Tat- I got the little Lemon Drop thing tattooed on my ankle as well. Um, so that meant that, that that meant a lot to me and just again that whole the whole home birth thing oh look if i if i could be an advocate for it absolutely because it's just one of the best feelings to be able to do it in your own space in your own home uh surrounded by the people that you want to be around it it was just great um and yeah right before um I I got to do like got to cut the umbilical cord like uh, I I did get a chance to hold him as well and and oh my god again like first time thing your own your own son your own flesh and blood it's just it's a weird feeling but it's it's so hard to explain to to somebody else but maybe the parents or whoever but that feeling is just one of the best in the world um and right before I got to hold him as well, like I, I was, I, I, everything, everybody was relaxed and stuff, and I put my head against the headboard and I'd, I'd, I'd nod it off completely, and I had to get nudged to be like, "Hey, what are you doing?" <laughs> so um, yeah, but after all that, we all you know, like it started to wind down and we started to uh, settle in. Um, we all say, said our goodbyes and hugged and, and thanked one another for being there to support us. And, and, and right before, right before they were about to leave, um, 
Jess was having trouble getting her nipple bar out. She had one of those the bar ones that goes a long way sort of thing in order to feed Jude right as he's born. And um, Meg, the, the midwife, just was like, hang on, I, I, I got this. I used to, he was like, I, I used to have one. So, like, I, I know how you're feeling. So it was just, it was very funny. So she came, she came back in right before they left and took the nipple bar out and, and, and made it easier to feed Jude. So it was, again, yeah, one of the best, best experiences that I've ever had. And, oh, look. Yeah, again, if I could be an advocate for it, I think more people should be uh, more comfortable looking looking at doing it uh, in a different way because, you know, like I said, some people don't like hospitals. Some people don't like the way that they, they deal with the births there. And, you know, I, I think it's honestly that they, they treat it like a number sort of thing and that's not how giving birth should be. It should be a really strong powerful experience for both of you because you know you're bringing your own kind into this world so i don't i we i for one as well didn't like that feeling so that again like made me more inclined to do it so yeah um it i i loved it like Jess and Jess and I have got such a such, and he's three and a bit now. Like he's he's so big. Like he was a nine pound baby. Like Jess, she did a she did a good job. <laughs> you know, like um, and and even now, like he's such a big boy. Like he's he's at the he's at the height and weight of a of a five year old. You know, he's a, he's he's been raised vegan as well. Like it, it's and that's the funny thing too. Like he's he's bigger than all the other kids and he's not a meat eater so you know um you know you don't have to be uh you don't have to eat that if you don't want to you know there's plenty of plenty of different things but anyway that's off topic um yeah, yeah so that's 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 the story of my first my first home birth our next storyteller, Joe Collot, was part of the popular children's entertainment band High Five and also the cast of the Book of Mormon here in Australia. Uh, he's an amazing musician. Check him out on his YouTube channel because he's just an absolute delight. And he told us a story of going to um, going overseas with High Five and why it's important for you always to carry your passport when you're traveling in another country. Here's Joe Collot. Yeah, this is this is pretty much based on the theme. I'd say it would definitely be, but this is um this story is about one of our high five tours. Um, this one where we went to Jakarta. Um, we didn't really know what was in store for us. You know, we got told what we were doing, but anyway, I'll get into the story. So most of our flights are international flights that leave from Australia at night, so we could have a nice sleep on the flight. High Five had this deal with Malaysian Airlines um, where we would do their commercials and they would give us business class to any international dis destination. So we all got to lie flat on the plane, which was all we, we used to all love doing that and getting a lot of sleep or whatever. But when we, when we landed in Jakarta, um, we've got off the plane, as you do, after our eight-hour flight, we looked like we just got off an eight-hour flight. And our cast stares and runs up to us and she goes okay are you guys ready and we're like for what to go to the hotel and she goes no are you guys ready you're going on live tv right now and and we look and just outside the airport there's this camera crew with with lighting and everything i'm in you know six dollar track pants from kmart and i'm just thinking oh my god so we, 
we rip open our suitcases and we quickly go to the bathroom and get changed. And yeah, we just get put on the spot and we do this live interview, not really knowing what it was, what was going to happen. Um, this story just isn't about this interview. This sort of starts it off. It's about the whole Jakarta tour and just how crazy it was. So the, this interview sort of set the scene for it. We did the interview. We thought it was crazy. And this tour consisted of live shows like it always did, but also a lot of television shows like um, Indonesian, you know, late night shows and, and stuff like that, which was super cool, you know, really, really cool thing to happen. We get to our first gig on the day. Um, I think it was the following day or the day after, after a rest day. And it, it struck us like we, we toured a lot of Asian countries before, but none were quite like, we were never received as well as this. It was honestly, it was like One Direction were in the mall. It was crazy. When we walked in, people were grabbing at us and, and pinching us. I don't know if that's a thing, but they were, <laughs> they were pinching us and trying to grab us and all this stuff. And we got thrown on live TV again right before we did the show and gave these interviews and we didn't really, you know, know what was going to happen. But we did it. We got through it and, and, and we loved it. We sort of loved, we loved every second. And with these TV shows, we'd be backstage for, for whatever TV show it was. And I had my guitar. So what usually what shows love, like if we did um, the morning show here on Channel 9, that, that like me to play the guitar and us to sort of harmonise, you know, uh, just the voices and guitar. But we weren't quite sure what was going to happen with some of these Indonesian TV shows. And we were sort of wigging out of it because we were on TV. Uh, one of them, um, we were supposed to do L-O-V-E, love. So... I had my guitar and I tuned it up and I was ready and I'm standing there with my guitar and then the backing track starts playing on live TV. And I sort of just, I took my guitar off and <laughs> danced it to the corner and I put it down and then I sort of danced back and, you know, did the song. <laughs> it was, it was just, we remember walking off like many different sets, just going, that was just the craziest time. Like we couldn't, we just couldn't believe what was happening. We were meeting all these different people, doing lots of those TV shows. But again, the live shows were the really, really crazy parts. Um, and one of the live shows we did, it was, it was pandemonium. It was crazy. It was like, and, and like I said, like we, we're well received in other countries, but it's usually just someone, you know, running up and, you know, wanting a picture with us. And we're like, hey, okay, we'll see you later at the show and walking around like normal. But it was, that was not the case in Jakarta. We got in the van. Uh, by the way, our vans had pictures of us. Like, so you couldn't see in, but you, you could see all of us out. And there was, um, or we could all see out. And there was a really funny moment where this kid pulled up and he was waving at the van and my face happened to be on my window. So if my face was this, I managed to wind the window down and just do that and wave at him. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you really liked that. But that was, that was on the way to a show. And they'd meet us, we do more shows. Um, that's, that was the main venue over there, malls. And that, uh, malls in Indonesia, it's, it's like this culture. You go to the mall, not just because you need something or whatever. People just go to the mall because they're so beautiful and extravagant. They're really, really good malls. But the sad thing is, you know, there's poverty like meters away. I remember we walked around between shows one time and there was a village that was struggling to get water and all this stuff. But then right next door is this multi-million dollar mall where you can go and spend all your money on arcades or whatever. So this, this one particular show, we had 
the security sort of holding a, a person link so no one could get through to us while we were getting onto the stage. And it was it was even crazier than we'd ever seen before. It was it was really weird. And we get on the stage and like, yeah, kids are loving it. And that's the best because kids just dance and get into it and have a lot of fun. So that's always great for us. But we, we get through the second number and then Lockie goes, okay, guys, thanks very much. That's all we have time for. And, I, you know, we all look back at Lockie and we take lead, you know, because if one of us says something like that, obviously we've gotten the neck or something like that. And we told we had to stop the live show um, because it was so crazy that kids were getting like trampled and hurt in the audience. So it was, it was really, really awful. We, it was one of those things we just, we couldn't believe. And uh, I remember being backstage and, uh, you know, it really, it really sort of it hit me hard. It hit all of us hard. Cause when you do those shows, um, uh, one of those kids, it might be their birthday present to come and see high five. And then we don't even get to do the full show for them and people are getting hurt. And it was, it was really, really horrible. Um, but I could, you know, Lockie and I, we were talking and we were really sad, but we could see some, some kids that were like up in the upper tiers of the mall and they could see into where we were. And we were just, we were having fun and waving with them. But then on top of everything, our cast liaison comes in and he goes, do you guys have your passports? The police are here. And I'm thinking, bro, this isn't the time. Like we, we, you know, we just had to let down a whole audience, not being able to do the full show. Don't joke around. And he's like, no, I'm serious. The cops are here. Do you have your passports? And we were like, no, they're in our safes in our hotel room. We don't, we don't have that. We don't carry our passports around. And then the police came and basically uh, the rule in Jakarta is you have to have valid ID at all times. And if you're an international, the only valid ID you can really hold is your passport. So they held us, they took us back into this other room where they held us, I mean, captive, me and the High Five gang, because we didn't have our passports until someone could go back to the hotel and, and, and grab them. And the only one that had a passport on her was Bailey. So we just had to kind of make sure Bailey was safe while we sit in this room with these policemen. And they still wanted to get photos with us and everything. They were just like, you can't leave. You're not allowed to leave. And... I don't know. That was just the craziest time on tour. And I don't know, our kind of, you know, peaceful protest, because I still had my guitar, is um, all of us were just sitting around the table with the policeman there and we were just singing, I shot the sheriff, Bob Marley. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, um, that's one of the craziest tours I'll ever remember. And uh, Bailey ended up getting, it took about three hours because of the traffic in Jakarta. But she ended up coming back with all our passports and we ended up being let out. But yeah, from, from kids being trampled and too many people and making sure it was safe and then us being, you know, I don't know, possibly getting deported. It, we didn't really know what was going on. We just sort of had to make do with what we could. And yeah, that was the craziest tour story, I'm pretty sure, from High Five. Our last story for the week is Dorothy May, who you may have heard tell the Taoist uh, tale on a previous podcast. And she's been down at the barricade of... Uh, there's been an ongoing protest here in Brisbane um, uh, dealing with our asylum seekers um, that are being held um, currently at this time. And she just wanted to share a story of what it's been like to be on that front line. I, I am a bit nervous right now, actually, about sharing this story because I thought, oh, I, was, I felt a bit conflicted. I was, I'm going to 
but what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and tell this story in a really compassionate way that um, takes care of us while we, while we, you know, take it in and, and absorb it. Um, I was originally going to tell a story uh, about the time my nipple stole the show and I accidentally flashed and <laughs> But that's that's a comedy that's that's a comedy story we can we can tell that any old time. Um, I felt like tonight needed to be uh, uh, a a bit about um, paying service to um, what's going on around us right now and um, connecting to our heart space. So um, the story starts out with um, me being. Uh, present at a rally over the weekend. Um, so I attended a couple of days um, of a rally for the Free the Refugees um, movement. And um, so I'm based in Brisbane. And so I was at the Brisbane rally and the Brisbane rally is being held at 721 Kangaroo Point um, and 120 men uh being held there um these men have fled war-torn countries uh seven years ago and they've been held there and um manis and nauru um for accumulatively seven years um at this point there's some really inspirational work that people are doing trying to um encourage uh, them being freed by Christmas um, and being reunited with their families um, and, and welcomed and embraced into the community. Um, at the moment, the government's spending a lot of money just trying to keep them there um, and just paying, paying to keep them held at this hotel um, but that, that money could be better spent elsewhere and these people could be fully engaging in our communities and being a part of our, our, our world and contributing. Um, so on, at this rally, there were some really wonderful um, speakers that shed a lot of light on the situation and what needs to happen moving forward. And we were really privileged to actually be able to have some of the men that are being held in there um, speak over the phone. So, um, and this is a privilege because this is something that the government were trying to take from these men. They, they were risking, at risk of losing um, their ability to have devices in the center. Um, they were going to be taken away. Um, I think because of the threat that that, that is to us all knowing about what's going on. Um, they're able to communicate with the outside and let us know how they're being treated and what's going on and keeping us in the loop. And so um, the government would rather us not have that information. So it is quite a privilege that we got to hear from these men um, through, through telephone. And we saw some of them up on the balcony as they spoke into their phone and um, you know, uh, Jonathan Shree from the councillor from the Gabba stood there with the mic on the phone so we could all hear the words of, of these men. Um, one of the men, he is a father to a son and has a wife on the outside and, and a little boy. 
and he hasn't been able to hold his son for many years. Um, and as he was telling us how much he appreciated us being there and offering his love to us and saying, please don't give up on us. Um, he also mentioned that the things that they'd seen is a horrible and unimaginable of the things that they've been exposed to is awful. Um, he also said that all he wants is just to hold his boy and his um, son and his um, wife were actually at the rally and the crowd just started to spontaneously say, let him hug his son. And I actually remember being one of the first people to scream that out because the, the moment that man said, I just want to be able to hold my son, my heart just broke in two. And I, and I remember just yelling out, let him hug his son. And then somebody else yelled it out. And then more people started yelling it out and we just couldn't stop. And the whole crowd of about a thousand people started yelling, let him hug his son, let him hug his son. Um, people started pushing against the barricades and jumping up onto the top of the fence to, to get the message through. And um, so Jono had to actually then um, negotiate calming the crowd, um, implicating everybody because we just wanted to be heard and the guards and the police officers did nothing. And um, there's some really incredible footage floating around at the moment that I encourage you guys all to be able to have a look at because it's really telling um, of, and some of that footage shows the, the faces and the expressions on the guards and on the police. And um, you can tell some of them have compassion and their hearts are breaking based on what's held in their face, even though they're wearing glasses and they're pretending not to care. Um, and it ended up being a so John uh, ended up um, pleading with the police saying that we're not we're not violent protesters we're not here to riot but can we negotiate this now please um, this and he asked that the police would um, do their best to now to defuse the situation in their role and find a way to negotiate so that we could all find a way to, I don't know, have an outcome in that moment. Um, the man came around to the top of the balcony and he said to us, they won't, they won't let me. Um, and that's my story. And that's the end of the Story Chunder podcast for this week. A slice of history. In five years' time, people can listen back to uh, these stories from 2020 and wonder about what was happening at that time. We've got a little bit of a time capsule here for the future, we hope. If you like the Story Chunder, please support us on all our socials at the Story Chunder, www.thestorychunder.com. We, you can make a donation on PayPal or Patreon if you want to um, help us continue to build this event. Uh, maybe get me a better microphone <laughs> so that the sound quality of the podcast can continue. 
Uh, meanwhile, uh, thank you for all of us who have rated us and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts and followed us on Spotify. And we also have a YouTube channel, so head on over to there. You can see the storytellers telling their stories and um, share those, like those, do all those good things that you can for us. And we look forward to continuing to tell our stories. And we will see you next time, or you will hear us next time on the Story Gender Podcast. This has been Matt Young. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.